what this statute does isn't really about does it violate Roe or does it not violate Roe, because we know that it violates Roe and it was created specifically to violate Roe. What is different about this statute is that the, the moving target of who could be a proper defendant in a lawsuit challenging the statute, that's the thing that's really tricky. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, back in May of this year, Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed into law Texas Senate Bill 8, better known as SB 8, one of the more or most restrictive abortion bills in the nation. In an effort to circumvent precedent, Texas instead created a mechanism that permits private citizens, specifically any person other than an officer or employee of a state or local governmental entity, in this state, to file civil suits against a wide range of people who participate in or aid and abet in the action of the performance of an abortion of a fetus after cardiac activity is detected. Well, SB 8 went into effect September 1st, 2021, after the United States Supreme Court refused to strike it down on a procedural grounds. But since then, the constitutionality of SB 8 has come into question and the potential threat to the constitutional rights of women and other persons has taken center stage. This month, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the Department of Justice will file a lawsuit against the state of Texas. In his remarks, Garland said the United States has the authority and responsibility to ensure that no state can deprive individuals of their constitutional rights through a legislative scheme specifically designed to prevent the vindication of those rights. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at Texas's abortion law, SB 8. We'll discuss the impact of the law, the legal, ethical, and bioethical concerns stemming from SB 8, the constitutionality of the law, the Department of Justice lawsuit, and since the arguments that the DOJ will be using in Texas against Texas, and what this means for the future of Roe versus Wade. And to do that today, we have Dean Kimberly Mutchison. She's co-dean and professor of law at Rutgers Law School in Camden, New Jersey. Her scholarly work is at the intersection of family law, health law, and bioethics. She writes on issues related to reproductive justice with a focus on assisted reproduction, abortion, and maternal fetal decision-making. Welcome to the show, Dean Mutcherson. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And just as a sidelight for our listeners, I would encourage them to go take a look at your resume on uh, the website at Rutgers. It's a, It's a... Very detailed and thorough and pretty spectacular resume. So I'm really glad to have you on the show today. Thank you. We're talking about this new law regarding the abortions in Texas, SB 8. Can you give us some context about how, what the law says and then how it fits into what we all understand as Roe v. Wade? Absolutely. So the Texas law is really um, another iteration of lots of legislation that we've seen in the states over the last few decades, frankly, that are aimed at either reducing access to or completely eliminating access to abortion. What Texas has done is particularly powerful in some ways because of the way that they crafted their legislation. 
So the first piece of the legislation is that it forbids anyone from providing abortions after a heartbeat is detected in a fetus, which is around six weeks. Now, if I were an OB, I'd probably be talking to you about whether that really is a heartbeat or not, but I'm not, so I won't even fight about that. Um, So it is considered a heartbeat bill that essentially says you cannot have an abortion after a fetal heartbeat can be detected. That standing alone under existing precedents, under Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey, is blatantly unconstitutional. Under Casey, which is a 1992 case, the Supreme Court decided that viability is the dividing line between when a state can ban abortion and when a state can regulate but not ban. So in that sense, the law is sort of unconstitutional on its face. What's tricky about what Texas did is that the law says that no one in a position of, or in a government position in Texas can enforce the law. So normally when you see laws that are, um, you know, intended to impact abortion access, they're being enforced by the state, right? Whether you can sue the governor or you can sue, you know, the commissioner of health or, or somebody else who's a state actor. Texas said, we're going to take the state completely out of enforcement and we're going to give enforcement to private citizens. So any private citizen in the state of Texas who becomes aware that someone has performed an abortion after that, you know, about six week mark after about um, when a heartbeat is detected, they can go to court and they can say, you know, I know that this person performed an abortion that was an illegal abortion under the Texas statute. And if that person is found liable for it, they will have to pay a civil fine of at least $10,000. That's what the that's what the law says. Not only does it capture people who perform abortions, it also captures people who aid or abet in the performance of an abortion. So that could mean your sister who drives you to the clinic. It could mean the receptionist at the clinic. It could mean your friend who counseled you about where you could access um, an abortion. So it casts an incredibly wide net and much wider than we have seen in other abortion laws in this country. It sounds like a bounty hunter statute. I think that's right. And, you know, when the case went up to the Supreme Court because the plaintiffs were asking for a stay so that the law wouldn't actually go into effect, four justices dissented from the court's decision not to stay the law. And we only know that, of course, because for because they wrote dissents. Normally, we wouldn't even know how many people had voted or how they had voted. And Justice Sotomayor, in her dissent, specifically used the phrase bounty hunters, that essentially what Texas had done was deputize anybody in the state of Texas to be a bounty hunter for folks who are providing abortions or who are assisting others in getting access to abortion services. So it really is putting aside whatever your feelings may be about abortion and the legality of abortion, the idea of deputizing private citizens to interfere in in medical decision-making in this way is pretty frightening. And I can't imagine the consequences in a right-to-carry state. Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that one of the things that's really sort of challenging here is we don't actually know what it will look like in practice on the ground, in part because the chilling effect of the law is so profound. 
So if you are a person in Texas who is providing abortions, and what clinics will tell you now is either that they've shut down completely because the law is in effect, or they're only providing for abortions for that very small slice of women who are able to come, who one, recognize a pregnancy early enough, and then who are able to come in and access abortion services early enough in their pregnancy. So, you know, there is something really frightening, particularly because we know already that there have been, you know, abortion doctors who have been killed, abortion doctors who are consistently, and people who work in clinics who are consistently harassed by folks who are anti-choice. So the idea of sort of putting that kind of target on doctors' backs and on the backs of folks who work at clinics is is really problematic and scary. You're right. I'm going to ask a question that I'd, I'd always wanted to ask a law professor, let alone a dean. If you're going to argue the other side of this, mm-hmm. how would you say that SBA skirts around Roe versus Wade? The way, the only way that 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 SBA skirts or SB eight skirts around Roe versus Wade is that it makes it really difficult to figure out who a proper defendant is if you want to sue before the law goes into effect. the The core substance of the law is on its face a violation of Roe. And it is meant to be, right? That's not an accident. It's not a question of, you know, do we think that the court will interpret Roe differently or that the court will interpret Casey differently? We know what those cases say. We know that a ban at six weeks or around six weeks is a violation of that. So what this statute does isn't really about does it violate Roe or does it not violate Roe? Because we know that it violates Roe and it was created specifically to violate Roe. What is different about this statute is that the the moving target of who could be a proper defendant in a lawsuit challenging the statute, that's the thing that's really tricky. Wouldn't it be the state legislature since they were the ones that enacted it? It wouldn't because they they make it very clear that they're not the ones who are going to enforce it. Well, is enforcement the requirement? Enforcement is the requirement in order to be able to successfully sue someone, right? It has to be somebody who is responsible for enforcing the statute. And here, the people who are responsible for enforcing the statute are random, you know, people in the state of of Texas. It's not. So, you know, the plaintiffs did try part of what they did in, in order to try to get some defendants in order to be able to stop the law from going into effect is they sought an order that would keep state court judges from hearing these cases or that would hear the clerk that would keep the clerks of the court from accepting complaints about these cases. And so that that again, the sort of tricky thing here isn't does a six week ban violate Roe versus Wade or does a six week ban violate um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey? That's 100% clear, right? Nobody can argue that. The only way you get around that is by saying that Roe and Casey are no longer good law. And what's the likelihood of that? I mean, we have a Supreme Court that's shifted from Roe versus Wade. There's a different constituency there. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. The, there's a second case that is um, that was already accepted for cert at the court for this term. It will probably be argued in December, and then we'll get a decision in June 22. And that case is a case that comes out of Mississippi. It's the Dobbs case. And that is a 15-week ban, which again, is a violation of Roe and is a violation of Casey. So a lot of us had our, our, our eyes on that case 
because it had already been accepted for cert. We know that it's going to be argued um, in front of the, the court this term. And, you know, what I had been saying before SB8 and what we've seen play out with SB8 was that I thought we would see this court continue to really chip away around uh, the edges of Roe and Casey. So not overrule them um, altogether, but create more and more ways in which states could regulate abortion in such a way that lots of people wouldn't be able to have access, even if technically it continued to be a constitutional right. And now I think I was wrong <laughs> to think that the court wouldn't actually overrule Roe versus Wade because it's it's looking like what might happen in Dobbs is that they actually, you know, go go whole hog and reverse Roe and overrule Roe. And then that puts us in a in a totally different space than the one that we've been in since, you know, 1973. Right. And at that point, if assuming that Roe is overruled, can Congress play any more role in this, or is the decision done at that point? Congress could play a role in it. So there is a bill that's been floating around called the Women's Health Protection Act um, that's been floating around in Congress for some time now. And it is a bill where the intention would be to codify Roe versus Wade so that we wouldn't have to rely on Supreme Court precedent um, in order to establish that there is a right to terminate, a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy. The Women's Health Protection Act, frankly, no matter what happens in this court with Roe versus Wade, the Women's Health Protection Act is not going to make it through Congress. Even if it somehow could make it through the House, it would not get voted out of the Senate. And so theoretically, there's a possibility for Congress to have some sort of impact here. But in the real world, that's just not going to happen because they don't have the votes. So what do you advise women in Texas to do? Well, right now, what I advise women to Texas in Texas to do is if they have the means and they are pregnant and don't want to be pregnant, they need to leave the state. And for lots of women, that is not going to be a possibility for a whole range of different reasons, whether it is that they can't afford to because they don't have the money, they can't get where they need to go because they don't have transportation, they have young children to take care of. And we know that the vast majority of women who have abortions already have children at home, they have children to take care of, and so therefore can't take the time to leave the state. I mean, there are lots of reasons why that would be difficult. So your sort of best bet at this point is either to be lucky enough to have the resources to leave the state, be lucky enough to recognize your pregnancy early enough so that you can get an abortion in the state of Texas, or try to, to self-manage your own uh, termination, your own abortion. And, you know, that's one of the things that's really different from where we were pre-Roe in the 70s. You know, the things that were available for people to self-manage abortions, um, frankly, were not as, as safe as what we have now, right? I mean, you can have a medication abortion in your, you know, in your first 10 weeks or so um, of pregnancy and it's pills, it's not surgery, it can be done very safely. All you need is a prescription for that. So, you know, that's a possibility for women too, but we already see Texas and other states working to make it more difficult to get access to medication abortions as well. So, you know, that the circle in which women are going to be able to terminate pregnancies is just going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Huh. I'm going to step for a moment here into some abstract constitutional theory that and uh, step back in time to when okay. Kamala Harris asked Brett Kavanaugh in his confirmation hearing 
whether he knew of any laws that regulated women's bodies. Mm-hmm. What what kind of equal protection issues exist in that question? Yeah. So it's really interesting, right? I mean, on one hand, I, because I'm a law professor, I do have lots of sort of theoretical conversations about the law, but I'm also um, a law professor who feels very steeped in the real world. So I worry a lot about, you know, what do things mean um, in practice? And one of the decisions that was sort of a litigation decision that was made at various points, and part of it is just a reflection of how the Supreme Court initially decided this issue, was that this was going to be a privacy issue and not an equal protection issue. And, you know, and that in some ways has made it, you know, depending upon who you're talking to, has made it easier to think about overruling Roe, because as we know, the right of privacy does not exist in our constitution. You're not going to find the word privacy there. And it's something that has been read into the constitution over a period of of years and, and centuries. You know, on one hand, I don't totally buy this argument that there aren't, you know, other ways in which the, the state regulates people's bodies, right? So even thinking about something like the draft, right, where we can conscript people, men mostly, and force them to, you know, to join the military, you know, that's a pretty significant way to, you know, force somebody to do a particular thing with their body. But the examples of that are are very, very small. And abortion is a very clear space. Pregnancy in general, frankly, is a place where the state has taken liberties that it does not take with other people and that it doesn't necessarily take with anybody who who isn't pregnant. And as you know, as you said at the sort of top of our conversation, I also uh, teach and study bioethics. And, you know, I think the, the questions here are really difficult questions about, you know, when does life begin? What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to have autonomy? What does it mean to have bodily integrity? And some of those questions are frankly easier to answer within the, the scope of morality and ethics than they are in, in law. And yet, we have to come up with an answer for them in the context of law because decisions have to be made. So it's a, it's rough. How will we see, let's go from the abstract back, right, as you mentioned, you know, you're, you're rooted in practicality. Are we going to have to see the, the quintessential Mrs. Kravitz from Bewitched, the old TV series, snooping on their neighbors and, and reporting them and citizens arrest? Where does this devolve? I think it's a really frightening scenario. And, you know, one of the things that I think has been really important in the last couple of weeks since this bill, since this law was allowed to go into effect, is you're really seeing people kind of on both sides of the aisle who are raising concerns about a law like this. You know, we don't necessarily want to live in a world where we are inviting people to, as you said, sort of snoop on their neighbors, um, to take their their neighbors to court and try to win $10,000 from them. You know, that's, that's not necessarily the world that we want to be living in. And there's something very both cynical and dangerous about a law like this. And if you could imagine a set of circumstances where, say, someone from 
you know, the more progressive end of the of the scale said, all right, if this if this is what we're doing now, then we're going to have a law that says, you know, private citizens can enforce gun restrictions. Um, and if I see you with a weapon that you shouldn't have, then I'm going to do X, Y or Z thing and I can take you to court and I can, you know, win ten thousand dollars from you. I mean, there are certainly ways where you could imagine sort of flipping, flipping the, the scenario that would be really, really problematic. So this is a, you know, it's a set of circumstances that I think is is really worrisome. And one that I think ultimately most people who make legislation would not want to go down this road. So I don't I don't mean to poke fun at this thing, but it, it's that we have the satanic temple now filing <laughs> a challenge against this. Have you read about it? What do you think about it? Yeah, so they they actually have done that not just in abortion cases, but they've also done it in other sorts of free exercise um, cases. And I always find it really interesting because I think there's something worthwhile about, you know, really, really pushing those boundaries of how we allow religion and morality to to seep into to seep into our laws. Right. And it, it is not the case and, and putting aside the satanic temple, you know, it is not the case that every religion takes the position that abortion is a moral wrong or that is it is, is against the precepts um, of their religion. You know, you think of Judaism and some other religious traditions. So, you know, I think that it's really important and that, and that abortion is really a space where we can have some tough conversations about the separation of church and state and the ways in which we have to continually remind ourselves that what we might think for ourselves personally, what we might think based our, on our own faith, that doesn't mean that we get to enforce it on other people, at least not in the constitutional order that we live in. Right. Well, let's let's dive into that favorite law school phrase, slippery slope, mm-hmm. and uh, f- let's think back to what happens if we have legitimate practitioners of uh, the beliefs in Sparta, where uh, ancient Sparta, where they took babies that were deformed and put them on a hillside to die. Mm. Where does the line get drawn between a live? but yet deformed baby in the Spartacan belief compared to the satanic temple saying, or whatever religion you want to pick, saying we believe that abortions must be allowed. Mm-hmm. We take the mm-hmm. exact opposite. So how do we play that as a society? Where does the ethical line lie? Where does the legal line lie? Where should that social policy be? Oh, I love asking these law school questions. <laughs> That's that's why some of us become academics, right? So we can ask, so we can ask these kinds of questions, right? And here we are on a podcast doing the same thing. So much after I graduated from law yeah. school, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, I these are these are the kinds of issues that I, you know, literally can talk about for hours and hours, right? And one of the ways that I often talk about these kinds of really tough moral, ethical, and frankly, personal questions that people have, as I say to my students, there's one set of conversations that we might have if we're sitting around, you know, having a drink together, or we're sitting around the dinner table and we're talking about a particular issue, or we're talking to a friend about the decision that she wants to make um, about a pregnancy, but do we want to pick up that conversation and make it law? Right. Once we start talking about what are the rules that we are going to make for how everybody gets to live their life, my hope is that there are lots of ways in which we would say, all right, my 
my personal view of the world doesn't necessarily get to dictate how everybody else um, lives their life, particularly when it comes to something as literally personal as what happens inside of your body and what obligations then that you then have, um, either because you are pregnant or because you have given birth to a child. We have been, you know, one of the most amazing things that our modern world has given us is the opportunity to know a lot more about a fetus than, than we used to, right? I mean, part of what really animates a large part of the discussion here is our ability to find out that people are pregnant earlier, to do ultrasounds so that we can actually see what it looks like as a pregnancy grows inside of a a person's body. We can do prenatal testing and we can identify whether that fetus is going to grow into a child who has profound disabilities or who has disabilities or a disease that are that's incompatible with life. And the individual decisions that people have to make in those circumstances can often be incredibly, incredibly heart-wrenching. And I can't imagine being, you know, having so much hubris as to think that I could make those decisions for someone else for a whole range of different reasons. So I think this is sort of a space where we really want to be conscientious about whether there's a, a single position that the government can or should take on such things, or is this one of those places where the only way to really move forward is to allow people to make their own individual decisions based on their own beliefs, their own circumstances, and their own sense of both what they want and what they can handle. Right. And let's go down the other side of that slippery slope. So all of a sudden now we've, we are controlling when uh, abortions can occur. Was the state's next step to say, we're going to control whether they're blonde haired and blue eyed? I mean, mm. <laughs> realistically. I feel like you've been looking at the syllabus for, for my bioethics class. Um, I cheated. <laughs> you know, one of the, so I obviously, you know, I do abortion work, but I also do a work on, uh, on assisted reproduction. And part of what we talk about in, in the classes that I teach and that I talk about with a lot of other scholars who do this work is not, not only what level of control should the government have over these kinds of decisions, but frankly, what level of control should individuals have? over these decisions. Um, and we're not there yet, right? I mean, the, the the world of Gattaca is still relatively far away, but you know, we can certainly imagine at this point, now that we've got gene editing techniques that can be used and that can be used in a more you know, widespread way, you know, what kind of manipulations are going to be available to people in the future? And maybe it will be something that you know, I think I, I think of as being sort of frivolous, you know, eye color and hair color, but it could be things like I want my kid to be particularly smart or I want my kid to be particularly athletic or I want a child who, you know, or or we do prenatal testing and find out that this is a child who's going to be deaf and I decide I don't want to have a child who is not hearing. And, you know, and the concern that gets raised a lot in the ethical literature is is there some point at which we start to think about babies as as products, right? Things that we manufacture so that I can go in and say, you know, this is the one that I want and this is the one I want you to build for me. And I and that's that's worrisome. I'm not sure that that's the future any of us particularly want to live in, but it might be the future that awaits us. It sounds like a dystopian novel. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's really challenging because, you know, as I was saying before, on one hand, we do want people to be able to make their own decisions about, you know, having children or not having children about, you know, whether they want to terminate a pregnancy or carry a pregnancy to term, whether they want to raise a child or, you know, put that child up for adoption. And if we look at this country's history, one of the things that we have to really pay attention to is that where the government has inserted itself into reproductive decision-making, it has often done so in a way that is incredibly problematic. You know, I was just teaching a class the other day where we were focused on the history of forced sterilizations in this country, and particularly forced sterilizations of women living with disabilities, forced sterilizations of uh, Chicano women um, in Los Angeles in the 70s, leading to a case called uh, Madrigal versus uh, Quilligan, forced sterilizations of particularly poor Black women in the South. So we actually had North Carolina not so long ago actually creating a program of reparations um, for women who had been sterilized um, without their consent in the South. So I worry a lot about what the world looks like when the government decides, you know, who should have a baby and what kind of babies um, should be brought into the world. And even the forced sterilizations that you mentioned are the tip of the iceberg because it's been such a historical problem. Oh, yes, absolutely. And we just, you know, just last year in 2020, we had a whistleblower from an ICE detention center uh, down in Georgia, a nurse who was working there who said that there were sterilizations and other kinds of um, gynecological procedures being done on women in ICE detention. So, you know, even in 2020, we still see these these kinds of things going on and it should it should worry all of us and we should all care about that kind of interference with reproductive decision making. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, Dean Hutchison. So I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to share your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners. Absolutely. So, you know, I think that we're in this really interesting space right now. I mean, on one hand, yes, SB8 has really brought into stark relief that Roe versus Wade is potentially on on its final legs, which is going to leave us with a patchwork of abortion law in this country, right? I think, you know, the thing that people need to remember is that if Roe falls, that doesn't mean that abortion suddenly becomes illegal all across the United States. It means that individual states get to make decisions um, about abortion law. So I live in New Jersey. New Jersey will continue to have um, legal abortions, but folks across the river in Pennsylvania um, might have a very different experience. And the other thing that I think is really critical is to remember that when abortion ceases to be available, that doesn't mean that people, that everybody is going to carry their pregnancy to term. What it means is that women who are the most vulnerable, women who are low income, women who are very young, women of color, women who are undocumented, right? Those are the folks who suffer the most when they don't have access to good reproductive health care and good reproductive health care includes being able to terminate a pregnancy if that if that is the choice that you want to make. So we're in a really tough spot. And then the other the only other thing that I will say, because we didn't talk about this very much, is also sort of the question of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. And abortion has been a space where I think that gets raised quite a bit because 
if there is any place where we can look at the raw politics of the Supreme Court, it's in abortion law. And we have seen that playing out in SB8 because we know that a court where the justices were a different configuration would have acted very differently in, in the face of this particular, this particular law. So it gives me really a, a lot of pause and concern about our, our institutions and particularly our just judiciary and the highest court in the land. I can be reached um, on Twitter at, at Professor Much, M-U-T-C-H, the first part of my last name. And I'm always happy to talk to people there. Great. And thank you so much for being on the show today's very interesting discussion. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.